Welcome to Homemaker Chic Podcast. It is Monday. We have a fantastic, jolly good show for you today. I am your host, Angela Reed, and I am here with Jay Elliott. I'm a Parisian farm girl. She's of the Elliott Homestead, and together we are rescuing the art of homemaking from the daily grind with red lips and no jumpers, even though I think maybe today we should... We should just rock the jumper British style. What do you think? I think we probably should. You guys are uh, prepare yourselves for what's about to happen here. It's a Absolutely. new version of the British invasion. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about today. but I'm not going to give it away quite just yet. Okay. Speaking of um, going back to the mother country. <laughs> <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by... My very own old world design society. Shay, did you get your magazine yet? No. Oh, you should have it by now. You should have it today or tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, we're going on like a week since they got shipped out. So, okay. My old world design society is a special community of people who are like-minded, who believe that new isn't always better. We love chateaus and crofters cottages and velvet tufted sofas and oil paintings and all things old world. And this society includes a publication. You can choose digital or print, whatever is best for you. And an online community where we are having a fantastic time sharing our uh, spring decor ideas, paint swatches, everybody's showing off their homes and making friends. We are studying a particular artist and have a few DIY projects for this quarter I would like to invite you personally to join the Old World Design Society, if I could say it. If you (laughs) haven't yet, you can visit oldworld.parisianfarmgirl.com and we would love to have you. Today's episode of the podcast is also brought to you by jovialfoods.com. You guys have heard us talk about them for the last year because that's how much we love them. Jovial Foods was started by Carla and Rodolfo, a husband and wife team whose daughter was struggling severely with the gluten intolerance. And what Carla discovered is that the ancient grain of einkorn was actually able to be digested by people who had gluten sensitivities because of its weak gluten structure. It's also very high in minerals and very high in protein. So she like single-handedly set about to revive this almost extinct heirloom grain. And the result of that is jovialfoods.com, which is full of flowers and pastas and cookies and crackers and all kinds of things you can stock your natural food pantry with. Now that's even gone further into beans and olive oils and really amazing products. So visit jovialfoods.com to stock your whole food pantry with these amazing ingredients. Okay. Should we tell them now? Have a sip? No. Have no. Something? Okay, let's, let's cue the wine music. Let's cue the okay. wine music. Okay. There we go. Everybody's favorite song. This part of the show is brought to you by Dry Farm Wines. Dryfarmwines.com. Homemaker Chic. It is that easy to have fabulous, naturally yeasted, organic, biodynamic, old world wines shipped directly to your home. You can have three bottles, six bottles, 12 bottles. You can do red, you can do white, you can do red and white, you can do bubbly. 
These are the wines that Shay and I drink with our meals because there is no extra garbage in them. Mm -hmm. Okay, that grocery store wine that you are stressing out over, standing there in the aisle wondering what to purchase can have legally up to 76 ingredients, including purple dye. So if you would like to keep your wine cabinet as clean as what you stock your pantry with, then visit dryfarmwines.com forward slash homemaker chic. When you become a new customer as a listener to this fabulous podcast, you will get an extra bottle for a penny. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. (laughs) I was just telling Angela before we started recording you guys this like spring is coming. It's been sunny and semi warm here this last little bit. The snow has melted and I don't know. I don't know why we make New Year's resolutions like, oh, I'm going to lose 15 pounds in January and February. <laughs> Forget it. This is not resolutions. This is a spring resolution. And my goal would not be to lose weight, but I'm just feeling that need to perch and just shed and cleanse and like I've been juicing a lot of beets lately. I've just been feeling this need to sort of reset a little bit when it comes to food. Um, Like I told you guys a couple weeks ago, or I guess it was a couple months ago now, like I started just doing some Costco orders for some just easy, cheap food for school days. and, And that's all good. It's all fine. But personally, I'm just really feeling the need to like tighten up this ship a little bit. And what I love about dry farms is that you really have, I have zero guilt when I sit down and have a nice big glass of a red wine with my dinner at night. And it's just such a, it does feel like such a gift, not only like, Hey, you made it through the day. Here's a glass of wine, but it doesn't undo all your work. Right. You know, it's such a good feeling. I love it. Thank you. Dry farms. I love you. (laughs) Hey, what are you sipping? Okay. (laughs) Um, I actually, uh, okay. Have this one pulled for the week. This is, um, Imperico. And okay, yes. It is an Italian red Valpolicella. So, um, mm-hmm. from what I am learning about uh, this particular um, vintner, um, it's a boutique wine, boutique winery in Valpolicella Classica, which it says. And it's a red wine. These are all hand picked grapes. And as per usual with dry farm wines, there's no added extra yeast. There's a spontaneous fermentation that happens with the sugars that are on the grapes and they are um, fermented in stainless steel for about six to eight months at this winery. And oops, sorry, it was my glass. Um, It's just a fresh and fruity red wine kind of, or Italian red. Like we've talked about Mm -hmm. the other Italians there. A lot of times with dry farm, they're not really, they're not syrupy and they're not super heavy, Mm -hmm. but they're not tutti fruity, like a, um, you know, here in our area, we have a lot of wineries and it's fruit wine and they're light in a different way, like real sugary. This is yeah. just light in a clean way. So it's an Imperico Valpolicella is where it's from. Apparently mm-hmm. I can't read Italian. So I'm doing my very best here. <laughs> have you had You're this You're doing one? great. Okay, I have had you. that one and I love that one. All right. Yep. Well, cheers. Cheers to you. I'm having a Pellegrino right now. So am I. Right now, um, I like to have my Pellegrino um, with two drops of grapefruit oil. That's how I drink mm-hmm. mine, and it is so good. Oh my goodness! Um, 
this week I was down South. So I was in town in the big city, so-called. Oh, I was like, when did you go to the South? (laughs) I went uh, to Costco. Okay. And I needed some carbonated water. Yes. And I just grabbed a case of what we call here in Wisconsin, LaCroix. Okay. Yeah. I grabbed it. I was like, well, this will be fun. The kids will like it because it's like very lightly flavored, which I think there's some funny memes about that out there on social media. Yeah. I don't, the person who developed these flavors should be fired, (laughs) like sacked. There was limoncello, hibiscus, not hibiscus, but high dash biscus. And then some other one. And it was like, um, water. That's the best way to describe it. LaCroix makes grapefruit and lemon and lime, just very light, fine for the summer, whatever. These were the most disgusting flavors of carbonated water I've ever had in my life. (laughs) Don't buy them. Word to the wise. I always think about that meme that said it's, it tastes like somebody drank a soda and then burped and then you walked by. That's what it tastes (laughs) like. (laughs) Horrible. I've never heard that one. Yeah. Like you have never seen It's worded better, but it's like you just walked by somebody who drank a soda and burped. That's what it tastes like. <laughs> That's terrible. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. No, I, I add my own flavor if I want, but it's always grapefruit. That's what I like in my water. Mm-hmm. So this is my mama treat. This is what I get. I used to get lattes every day. I would drive into town when Stu was working. I'd haul all the kids in the car, you know, and we'd, hey kids, we're going to leave. You know, that stage of mothering where you're just like, get in the car. Cause yeah. it just contained them all for a while. Yes. Yes. I can sometimes because I have ones no. that are like, I don't want to go. Yeah. Or they're like, I'm going to get cars. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when they were little, that's what I would do. I would load them up. I would go drive to the furthest away coffee stand in our town, get a coffee, take stew one at work. And it was a very costly endeavor every day, but it just, you know, you need the break. Anyway, this is my break. Now this is my little treat to myself midday. And the break with bad flavored LaCroix. All right. Noted. Uh, Listeners, we're going to need you guys to strap in a bit because this is going to be our very first two part interview. So you see us now. We're going to be wearing the same thing because we're actually going to record Mondays and Thursdays episode back to back because this was the chance that we could have to talk to this incredible author about all the things that we've been wanting to talk to you guys about and have talked to you about. And right now, actually, as this airs, we are celebrating our year anniversary of Homemaker Chic Podcast. It's unbelievable. So this feels like such a great way to not only end season five, but also to celebrate a year of just encouraging homemakers and, you know, fighting the good fight. Yeah. And just under a million downloads. What? Really? Yeah. Like we're pushing 900,000 or something like that. It's crazy. So Shay mentioned um, seeing us and you're going to want to see this interview. So if you are not over on patreon.com forward slash homemaker chic podcast, check us out there and become a fangirl patron because you're going to want to enjoy. You are going to want to enjoy the video version of today (laughs) and Thursday. Yes, I'm I'm very excited for this. I hope that we are all a little bit more ladylike afterwards. You know, I got really upset last week because for some reason, sometimes 
um, players who play the podcast, they're like, Hey, we thought you'd want to see these reviews that people left about you. And I'm like, I don't want to see them, but thank you. So I just delete them. But somehow this one got opened in my email and it was somebody talking about how I, anytime I have something that's quote ethnic, I say it's trashy. No, you don't. The only thing I can think of that this lady was talking about was what I said I was eating out of a taco truck. Huh? Maybe I don't, I don't recall because I don't remember everything I said, but <clears throat> it really upset me. It really okay. upset me. Well, um, we're going to get to that. So less trash, bit. more lady. Okay. okay. That's, we're going to talk about rule 18 in a little bit. And that's going. Is to it help. about eating out of taco trucks, which it's is not. not trashy. It's classy. It's <laughs> okay. In fact, <laughs> I'm not done yet. Apparently I love street not. tacos so much. And I'm so not interested in them being trashy that I actually made street tacos for my cooking community this month. That was one of our recipes to teach all you Midwesterners how to eat a proper taco. We have plenty okay. of proper tacos here. You don't have the now market on Mexican culture there <laughs> in Washington, okay? We've got a pretty good market on it, and it's okay. delicious. Okay, delicious. now that our trash is all out, now we can channel our classy lady for... Cut. <laughs> Please stop talking so we can introduce this guy. <laughs> So we are so happy to welcome Brian Koslowski to the program. I think this is, I was going to say it's our first author interview, but we have Jennifer on all the time and she's an Mm -hmm. author, but Brian, you're our first author that we really don't know. So we're so happy that you're here and we have a big audience in the UK. We have sort of a standing joke on the show. I'm very loud in my headphones. Maybe I'm just talking a lot because I'm so excited. I know I can tell you're holding back. I can tell you're holding back. <laughs> we have um, a tagline to our show that we're um, rescuing the art of homemaking from the daily grind with red lips and no jumpers. And our UK audience gets confused all the time because they think that we're mentioning their sweaters. And we're talking about like the real like 1990s homeschool denim jumpers that some mm-hmm. women in our in our crowd wear. So that's... Um, a little point of confusion with our UK friends, but we are so happy to talk about their queen today and your fabulous new book, which I devoured. A friend brought it down to me a few weeks ago. She said, I think you're going to love this book. And um, she was absolutely right. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm so excited. Um, why don't we start by you just kind of introducing yourself to our audience and give us the load. 411. Give us the 411, the lowdown. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, gosh, I came to this project sort of by accident. Um, I had just finished up um, work on um, my previous book, was, which was about Jane Austen's um, health lessons that she can kind of impart to us today. And so my mind was very much in this lifestyle research mode. And um, and it just kind of hit me one day, kind of out of the blue that, um, you know, here we have this remarkable 
woman, the arguably the most famous senior in the world, the most famous woman in the world by by some estimates, and um, who has aged phenomenally well. And yet there's never been a um, a project, a serious project that has actually taken an investigative look to see how she's done that um, in any kind of serious way. So that's what I attempted um, with a lot of fear and trepidation, definitely. Um, but to look at the mountainous pile of information on the queen's life and try to find those and um, patterns of behaviors, those um, mental habits, those daily habits that she's embraced throughout her lifetime, you know, not just things that she has picked up willy-nilly in her 90s, but things that you really can trace back right into her childhood. So um, that's what I wanted to focus on. And um, I ended up finding 23 of them. And um, that's kind of the the basics, the basis of the book. Mm. But you're American, right? <laughs> it, so is, like, it is my it's, yeah, it's it's my lifelong sorrow as 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 Anna from <laughs> Of, of of not being born in the UK. We just we were just talking about that before you joined us. Mm-hmm. What about Anna Green Gables? No, that, like everybody we're drawn to are British and shucks, shucks mm-hmm. we're not British. Shucks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're kind of in a unique uh, position as Americans because we are just a gigantic country of immigrants. That's what we are. Like that, we come from all others, and I think. What's interesting is that there is something in American culture that is, for one, continually fascinated with British culture, but really any, I don't know what quite the word would be, but any other culture that's sort of reflective of what has, what's come here, right? Mm -hmm. So we kind of like, we kind of want to go to the source and, and learn more about that because we see pieces of it in our culture, but it's, you know, it's watered down generationally. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying, I've tried to winkle out my, my love affair with everything English for all many years now. And it kind of just drives me insane if I try to get to the nub of it. So it's a, it's a mystery. I don't know. I think some people either have it or don't. Um, and, and some people are more like into France or in, into French culture or, mm-hmm. you know, or Scandinavian culture. I just, my heart just goes directly to England. Um, so. Hmm. Just a good old Anglophile. Well, yeah, I, I was intrigued. You know, this show, we created this show to um, give homemakers around the world, maybe break some stereotypes and give them a voice. And as I was reading the book, I just thought, oh, my gosh, we have to have Brian on the show because I felt like our show's been on a year. Like, so this is our um, these these two episodes we're going to do with you are we're celebrating our one year anniversary. And there are a lot of parallels in the book with things that you admire in the queen, things that you're pointing out that we are encouraging in ourselves and to our audience, you know, from from posture to not hearing what other people think as you're making your own way as a homemaker, just a lot of fun parallels. So I'm I'm really excited to just sort of unpack this with you. And I, I wanted mm-hmm. to, um, I wanted to know, did you have an interest in the queen um, herself before you started thinking about her longevity and before you started before as an author, you looked and said, Hey, this kind of hasn't been done before. Nobody's looked at this from a longevity, a health, a habits standpoint. Was right. she a member um, of the Royal family that has always intrigued you for a long time? Um. Not particularly. I'm. I'm kind of ashamed to say. I'm. I was kind of. 
a little ambivalent about the royal family for for many years. Um, and it really wasn't until um, Catherine and William's wedding day that I noticed, um, you know, getting up really early and that I noticed okay, something magical is going on here. Something magical is, is taking place within me as I'm watching it. Um, and yeah, and, and it's, it kind of sounds a bit wacky and a bit kind of hippie-ish to, to point out. But um, I, I noticed something that actually a lot of people much smarter than me have noticed um, and, and, and written about quite in length. And that is, what is it about the British monarchy that, that makes people who view it... Um, makes them kind of want to work on self-improvement, want to kind of stand taller, want to be just better individuals. You know, famously, crime rates always go down during big royal events. It's it's almost like everybody internally wants to be on their best behavior. So a lot of people try to winkle out this mystery. Um, and, and I kind of take a jab of it in the introduction in the book. Um, but it, it's it's really going back to very far back to this ancient concept, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks kind of had a word for it a little bit. And um, they, they referred to this um, feeling and this kind of noun as, as Calibic Gathia. Um, and if I'm, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I apologize to any <laughs> Greek scholars out there, but um, it's sort of, it's sort of our human instinct to, to look at people a little bit, maybe higher up than us. And um, on the social scale, um, people that kind of epitomize refinement and dignity in their life. And they are, and in a way, they reflect what we want to see in ourselves. And and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the basics of it. And so that's sort of why we kind of are so invested in the British monarchy. We kind of see ourselves in them, see our better selves reflected in them. And um, that's why it kind of feels so wrong when kind of royals go bad and they misbehave like we really shouldn't matter that much it shouldn't really matter too much to them but because they are kind of reflective of us um it kind of we don't like what we see in ourselves when they go bad so it's this very strange symbiotic relationship that um humanity has with with the institution of monarchy Mm. does it ever go the other way where you're just like oh i'll never be that fancy forget it all and then they just you know Right. Yeah. Wayward. (laughs) Right. And that's what I was, I was very trepidatious starting this project. It's like, what am I going to find here that, you know, am I going to have to like get a corgi to emulate the queen's lifestyle? Like what, you know, how expensive is this going to be? How kind of wacky is this going to be? And um, what, what I found to, to my great surprise and joy is um, what an incredibly down to earth woman um, the queen is. And that all of these 23 rules I found, um, first of all, don't cost a penny, but they're incredibly um, replicatable in everyday life mm. for, for you or I. Um, and it's just because it's coming from this, you know, from a woman who is so down to earth and so level headed. Um, she is much more than actually people realize. Hmm. I, I find her, you know, even in reading your book and just watching things like the crown or whatever, it's frighteningly level headed. We, you know, the, the culture as a whole, I don't know, worldwide, but American culture is so reactionary and so impulsive. And then you just have this, she's just so solid and so pragmatic. And in, in reading your book, and maybe we can talk about this later on, but um, as somebody who's since childhood has been a fan of Diana as a child and teen, like always thinking of the queen as cold. 
and mm-hmm. frigid just because that's kind of the atmosphere I was in. Um, but then growing up and becoming a mature woman saying, oh, there's a lot more to this incredible person than mm-hmm. I than I realized. Um, I would love to start with rule number five, just sort of have you pick this, that apart for us a little bit. And in your book, you call it, listen to your inner Bobo. Is that <laughs> correct? That's her her lifelong nanny, right? Right, right. Um, so, yeah. Um, I liked that chapter because on this show, just even as homemakers, we we encourage homemakers. And our our philosophy here is that, you know, if you have an apartment, if you have no children, you just have your corgi and yourself, or you're like me, you're on a farm with six children, we're all homemakers. And it's easy to um, want to do better in your home and start to get really rigid with yourself. And I'm going to make a schedule. I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and things are going to go perfect. And we have try to encourage this mentality of routine over schedule. Mm. And I loved reading this chapter just about the queen's repetitive rituals and how and why those are a key to her strength. And I wondered if you'd just unpack that just a little bit for the audience. Yeah, of course. And so Bobo, which who you referred to, um, that was one of the queen's two nannies and the other was um, Clara Knight and Bobo was the um, the princess's nickname for Margaret McDonald. I'm um, somebody who eventually um, stayed with the queen really for, um, until until she died. Um, they had a remarkable bond together. Um, but so so highly influential in the queen's life, and particularly so in terms of both of these nannies were strict believers that children and adults um, thrived when. Their day revolved around predictable routines, daily rituals. Um, I mean, Elizabeth was put on the potty at the same time every day. Um, the timetable was was pretty strict. But, you know, instead of rebelling against this, um, Elizabeth thrived within it and, and flourished within it. And to the point where when she became queen in her 20s, she established a daily pattern for herself. Probably pattern might be the better way to look at this. Um, that really has hardly changed over the decades. Um, it's basically her same pattern that she um, follows today in her 90s. And, you know, it starts at 7.30 in the morning. She gets a little um, cup of Earl Grey tea. She takes a bath, listens to the radio, and um, that kind of starts her day off. And, and patterns like that sprinkle are sprinkled throughout her day until about 11 o'clock at night. She um, writes in her journal. She says... Um, her nighttime prayers while kneeling down before her bed every night. And, um, and uh, that kind of bookends her day. And so it's, it's so, so strongly ritualized. And, you know, you, you find this in so many highly productive, highly efficient people, they can get so much accomplished when their days are organized like this. Um, Because people tend to think, and I know popular culture and popular thought tends to think of, routines and habits as sort of stifling creativity um, or or um, stifling freedom. Um, and people want to be more spontaneous. Uh, but what so many artists and writers um, and, you know, philosophers know is that, yes, routines set your body on autopilot. They kind of, you know, put your body on cruise control, but they, they free up your mind to, mm-hmm. to kind of concentrate on higher matters. And they also give you... Um, which they give the queen, and this is really important, they give you um, opportunities to set aside niches of time for yourself every day 
um, that are built into your your habit, I mean, into your routine, um, times that you probably would never take time for without if they weren't incorporated into, into your habit. So, um, and that is something that's so crucial. You find this every day of the queen. I mean, she takes little breaks of time for herself and um, they're not selfish. They She just needs those time in order to kind of recharge her willpower. Mm. Can you just call me every day and remind me of this, please? Right? I think she that's... goes out and pulls weeds. I mean, which day and I are both avid gardeners. And so the bit about, isn't there like a weed at Balmoral or something that she goes out to pull or Sandringham or something? It's like yeah, oh, yes. the, the stinking Willie. Yeah. Yes. Willie. <laughs> I love it. Yes. I think, uh, you know, we, we talk about that so much with our audience about like, let's just get up. Let's just brush our teeth. Let's make sure we're showered. And, you know, what that creates, I think, ultimately, is just a steady person, mm. just steady. Instead of being this like, I'm really high and things are going great. And then I'm really low. And mom is just down in the pits. And like, is she going to come out? We don't know. You know, and it just, I wish I could remember what part of the book it is. I thought I'd mark the page, but you were. You were talking about basically what happens is when you when you bottle these things up, when there's when there's not that structure, you end up with a woman who needs to just go scream in a mattress lined room, you know, and it's just like that, that that person is not good about that. (laughs) She's not good for anyone. She's certainly not good for leading a country. (laughs) (laughs) Much less a home. (laughs) No, and this is what um, this is really if you go back and look at the records, this is what Prince Charles really struggled with very early on, Um, probably because of a little rebelliousness. He, early on in his real career, he tried going in the opposite direction. He's like, you know what? I want to embrace a more spontaneous, willy-nilly approach to my real career. I'm going to leave a lot of things open. Um, Rather than being freeing and liberating, it actually exhausted him. It ran himself ragged. Um, This is one of the number one complaints of his staff. And um, most critically, this was Diana's most early complaint is that Charles never took time, just time for himself or time for um, time for her. And so, you know, routines, the most, I think, important thing and the most, what I've learned most from this is that um, they they allow you to understand what you can accomplish in your day and what you can't. And the queen is very good at doing this, being able to say, yes, I could take on this extra obligation or this extra event, but I can also know when I, when I need to say no, and my routine will not allow for this. So unless you really mm-hmm. are structuring your day in this way, it gets very hard to understand what you can take on and what you can't. Um, and Charles has had a very hard time of learning this lesson. Mm-hmm. He's still that way. He still bucks against he, the routine. He's still that way. He Camilla will say it to this day. Like this is his, that is his number one issue. He still never takes time. He like constantly runs around with it like a chicken mm-hmm. with a test pedal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Very. Um, the rule number six, the survival of the courteous also. I liked that because I felt like it was sort of um, two part. And this is a little bit. I think even kind of blends into the routine a little bit, but of course I loved hearing about the manners and just the overall atmosphere um, at Buckingham. I thought that's, I mean, there's so many things to be said about how the culture as a whole, how we're all lacking in manners. We've just Mm. forgot what it's like to pause and be polite. So I very much enjoyed that. Um, But 
as far as the queen herself, you know, that chapter, you talk about her just being a, a marvel of concentration and accuracy. And, mm. um, for, you know, I couldn't of course help, but visualize the crown while I'm reading your book. You can't, can't help it. And so you just picture at her desk with the red box and the posture and just the precision that she seems to, to do what she does. Um, I'm sure there's moments of, of self-doubt and things like that behind closed doors, but just the way she presents herself. Um, I loved the, how you, you unpacked the, um, this idea of multitasking versus not multitasking. And we, we kind of have this, um, idea that we get so much more done that the multitasker should be idolized. And that that's something to really strive for is to be somebody that can, can do all these things and, and get it all done at once. And I, I really appreciated learning about her just that she just takes one thing at a time and, and sets her mind to that and does it no matter what, you know, I just always go back to the red box that she's, she's got to make her way through that box every single day. Um, Shay and I both get up really early as homemakers to, to get done what we need to get done. And it's very easy for us to, to feel like we need to bounce around and do a hundred different things during the day. But sometimes even myself at the end of the day, I'll look around and I'll go, I'll call Shana. Like I did a million things today. I have nothing to show for it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Have you seen that, um, that idea of being focused on one thing at a time? Has it impacted you as a writer or obviously you're a creative person as a writer? Has that impacted the way you approach work at all? It has definitely. As soon as I finished researching this part of the book, I um, immediately read a book uh, called How to Break Up with Your Phone, <laughs> um, which wow. was, which was a, I don't know if you've ever read that book, but it was, it was a great, uh, a great inspiration for me. And so I immediately took off all the notifications on my phone because, you know, I found myself, I would be at my desk, like entrenched in an important thing. And ding, you know, my phone would go off in the background and I would be kind of like a slave to it, going to it. And so um, knowing that, you know, the queen, yes, she has a cell phone, um, of course, but she, you will never see her messing around with it while she's, um, at her desk or, at, you know, with, uh, in an event, it's sort of just for emergencies for her, you know, up until fairly recently, cell phones were pretty much banned at the palace, um, for this reason, they're just, they, they're too distracting. Um, so yeah, that was, that was what I did immediately, um, got rid of all the notifications on my phone and, I set up, um, I know it's probably not like a, a aha moment, but it was an aha moment for me. I just set up um, a couple of times every day where I would check my emails. Um, I would, I kind of refused to sort of just always have it open on my computer um, and be kind of responding it at lightning speed. So I would, I just had, a, I would, I would look at it in the morning and in the afternoon and that was it. And honestly, nothing had to be that important that I had to respond to it at within, you know, within 30 minutes or something like that. And that's been so liberating to me. Um, and, and allow me to get so much more done really in the day, like it would anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of goes back to what you were talking about is just having that schedule. If you just create a schedule and you, you could let right. that peace of mind go and just say, you know what, I know that in four hours, I'm going to have 15 minutes to sit down and take care of anything I need to take care of on emails or, or whatever it may be, but just putting your mind at rest, knowing that space is reserved for that thing 
that I've said is important that I need to make sure it gets taken care of that, that precision and that, that detail is such an admirable trait because I think again, something kind of celebrated in our culture, especially for moms. And so maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not, but it's just like, we kind of celebrate like the hot mess, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, we're just so busy. And it's like, the kids are throwing cereal from the back seat of the car. And like, you know, it's like, this is kind of something to be, uh, aspire to. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way that's life and having kids is crazy. Okay. Like you got to embrace some element of that, but the hot mess mom like that gets old very quick when you are the hot mess mom. Right. It gets very old and it's not fun. And, and I think there's a lot of people who have capitalized on that and, mm-hmm. uh, and tried to kind of push that agenda because they're like, that way we don't kind of have to deal with this. We could just yeah. market no, it like, yeah, that's normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a question in there somewhere. I'm not sure what it is, but like, <laughs> No, well, the, the thing is, if, if you're any, if you're, if you're cowered by anybody to be like, oh, I can multitask and I'm a great multitasker, just know that scientists have researched this issue um, a lot recently and have found out there is actually no such thing as multitasking. People that say they're good at multitasking are actually just doing something called task switching, which is going back um, as quickly as possible between um, <laughs> random tasks to tasks um, because your brain technically can't focus on two things at once. So it really isn't capable of multitasking. Um, um, You could do, you know, two things that don't require a lot of mental effort at once, of course, but two things that require your focus, you can't do at once. So Mm. what, what happens is that when people think they're multitasking, they're actually spending a lot of time in between those moments, actually trying to recover and familiarize mm. themselves back with the task. So you end up <laughs> you end up losing a lot of time when you when you think you're multitasking because you're you're having to recover from these task switching moments um, as quickly as possible. And it's not very quick. Your brain's mm-hmm. not good at it. Mm-hmm. And energy and emotional energy, right? Like you've got to kind of you're, if you're switching back and forth, that's just a lot of wasted effort ultimately. But if we're not going to do that, then we have to be structured. We have to be because otherwise we're going to be trying to put out fires, right? Because if you don't schedule it in, you don't have it a way to deal with it. You're just dealing with stuff as it pops up. Right. And um, we kind of were very self-sabotaging. And like, like you said, Brian, just kind of feeling like we have to be the slave to this particular thing, to the notification or something. My favorite is when someone sends you a text, like I, I say to people or to my husband, like, you know, you're not morally obligated to answer that right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a thing. You can actually, even if it says scene, yeah, you don't have to answer that right now. And then I love it though. When like 40 minutes later, you get the three question marks. Like, did you Mm -hmm. say this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Just didn't want to answer. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I did. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about chapter or rule seven that you have here, airs and graces. Yes. I want to talk about poise is power. Let's talk about that. I mean, the queen okay. has poise. She's she got does. it. Yeah. She's and it's, it. it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to see 
today. She's nearing 95. So gravity has, you know, inevitably started taking its toll. Um, But if you read any biography about the queen, there will inevitably be a large section of that biography that is in some way praising her posture. And it's been remarkable. I mean, over the decades, um, you know, people have noticed that have watched her stand for hours at a time or sit for hours at a time. She never slouches. She never (laughs) slumps in her chair. Um, uh, Olivia <laughs> Coleman, I know Olivia Coleman, who plays the queen in the crown, does a really good job at this. And in, in, in terms of how she sits in a chair, if you watch her, she'll never kind of touch the back of the chair. Um, it's it's just rare for the queen to ever do that. She um, was brought up under this very upper class English maxim that um, a lady's back should never touch the back of a chair. So, you know, a lot of this is is based on just how she was raised um, as a princess, but and how she was trained. But as she has gotten into an adulthood, and especially now into her elderly years, it's remarkable how what decades of good posture has um, done for her physical health, her also her emotional health, but um, her physical health, yes, definitely. Um, in terms of strengthening her core, you know, giving her better balance, giving her a better sense of equilibrium, so that um, you know she is definitely within well within this window of elderly wobbles and falls and, and, you know, that can get incredibly dangerous and potentially fatal for some people. Um, but she has never had an incident like that. And um, there has been some kind of close calls, especially a few years ago when the queen was 87, she was touring some outbuildings in her Sandringham estate. And um, one building she entered into was a bit dark and she tripped over the threshold and her architect, you know, just like lunged forward in a panic trying to grab her. But to her mate, to his amazement, I mean, he his efforts weren't necessary. She was able to right herself and and regain that balance on her own. I mean, not 80, not many 87 year olds can say that. And so, you know, but it all goes back to just decades and decades of of strengthening her core and standing strong and and not slouching. Um, but I, I get you. This is the this is the hardest rule for me to follow on a daily basis. This is this is the tough one. I think we're not even aware of our mm-hmm. capabilities when it comes to our posture. Like we'll think, oh, I'm sitting up straight, you know, and <laughs> you know, like I don't even think we realize what what our potential is there. Have you seen her? um, movement lately. Like I, I used to be subscribed or following some Instagram feeds that like Mm -hmm. Kensington palace, and it would show a lot of video. Have you seen her in, in action lately, like walking to church or any videos of that recently? Like in what way? Just a little, I just wonder like how, how fast she's moving, like what, what she looks like in movement as someone who's almost 95 these days. I don't remember the, I mean, I I think I saw her at, you know, Eugenia's or Beatrice's wedding or whoever that was last two years ago or whatever. Mm. Right. Um, Yeah. And that's why that's why I was saying it it is a little bit more difficult to see her like phenomenal posture because Mm -hmm. she even she even tries to work on it nowadays. She she wears like a brace under her under her clothes, um, a kind of a posture brace. um, And uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's hey, it's it's she she's she's struggling along pretty good for 95. I I, you know, in terms of her steadiness, um, her just ability to walk is pretty phenomenal at that age. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think there's that, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, she's 95. So it's, it's, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to move, but if you look at everything, if she did not do, if she, 
wasn't, you know, if her stamina wasn't so great for so many years, she would never be in this position today to, to be walking at all. Mm -hmm. My grandfather and the queen are the same age. And he uh, was a farmer, extremely active. So a pharmaholic, I would put it. (laughs) And then in the winter would go on snowmobile trips and downhill ski and very active. And he's just in the last year and a half with a walker. Um, Mm. But they're the same age and just vitality just until like the last year and a half. Mm. But Mm. I always saw a lot of similarities in their youthfulness, you know, in observing Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder when the last time she rode a horse was. That was... That's oh, not too long ago. Yeah. That remember that big, like during the lockdown and they're like, the queen's out horseback riding. That was a kind of a big story. And cause she kind of refused to give that up. Um, do you remember that? I'm not, I'm not sure if you remember. I that, don't remember that. No. Yeah. No. Oh yeah. She was 94. She was out horseback riding. Oh, gosh. I love That's that. That's incredible. <laughs> okay. Awesome. I can just see her with her. Thank <laughs> you. Her little hat. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she has her, it's, it's, she, you know, she's compromised over the years. She now rides, sure. um, fell ponies, which are, just shorter horses so she can right. help it's easier but yeah, yeah um she still rides i want to ask Fantastic. you this because i know you're not a homemaker like our, like most of our audience well maybe you are i don't know um, a home. <laughs> you got a home We're you're all there whatever right? he's, got, um, he's got a nice little silhouette back there i know i'm not quite ready to move on from the poises power thing because i think i think this is really applicable for the homemaker. Yeah. So let's say whether she's just at home by herself, right? It's like, or she's got six kids at her heels. Where does poise and posture, where does that play a role for like the everyday? You're not going to royal events. You know, you talk about in your book, in one of the little footnotes, good posture can even trigger self control. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that study and, I mean, how that is applicable for just everyday people going about their life. Yeah, this is this is really fascinating. Um, and, and researchers have devoted a lot of attention to this, is that the pathway between when you stand tall and what that triggers in your brain and kind of the hormones that are released um, and a whole flood of great hormones are released just when you kind of put yourself in your most upright position. Um, and it, and like you said, it, it influences things like self-control and, um, people that, um, they even, they even did a study of recovering alcoholics actually. And, um, alcoholics who actually, um, took time to, to, to work on their posture. They were the ones who actually, um, didn't relapse as much as people who did. So it, <laughs> it gives you a feeling. So, I mean, just basically it gives you a feeling of, um, self-efficacy, um, a better feeling of, of, um, you can do this. It's just, it's very primal and strengthening mechanism that we have, you know, the, to, to be very, um, to slump down, that's a very digested pose. It's a very, um, um, like, a you've lost out. I, I don't know how you, mm. you've lost the battle of life kind defeated. of, like, kind of oh, defeated. Yes. Defeated. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I couldn't think of that word. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and it does communicate to the brain that, okay, we're going to pump up the, you know, the more depressive hormones now, and we're going to, we're going to tone, tone back happiness a little bit because something is going wrong. Um, whereas when you stand mm. tall, you, um, you let a lot of, um, 
happy hormones like dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin. So um, there's a lot of um, crazy mixes of neurological chemicals that happen when you stand up tall. And that's why it, it yes, it looks good. You know, of course, anybody wants to be around somebody that's standing tall, somebody that's not, and neither does somebody slouching. But um, if you're home alone, it's, it does, it does something wonderful to your brain chemistry too. Mm. So you said this was one of the hardest for you to implement. How, how are you working it, on it? it? Um, I, I, I even, it's so hard for me. I even <laughs> ordered a posh. I even ordered like one of those shoulder braces to, <laughs> to just force myself to go back. Um, it is so hard. And I think um, possibly I can blame this on maybe being a writer, being a desk kind of bound worker. Um, even though I have a stand-up desk now, I just, I, I write a sentence and I forget that I have bad posture. So I don't, I need some sort of like constant reminder. That's mm-hmm. the thing. I just, I forget. And I, I'm trying to figure out ways to just constantly remind me. Um, the mm-hmm. queen had it a lot easier from a very early in. It was, it was snapped into her as a child. I mean, you see some pictures of her, um, like as a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, and, you know, she'll be around other girls and they're all like slouching and slumping. And there's Elizabeth like standing bolt upright. Um, you know, this was definitely a inheritance from Queen Mary. Queen Mary was a for big believer sure. that, you know, mm-hmm. children should not wiggle around too much and they should stand as upright as possible. So she, she got it like smacked into Real her. Very early That's what age. you need. You need somebody there just to hit you with the ruler every time. Mary, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. I imagine that Queen Mary was um, a forceful presence as a grandmother. <laughs> Intense. Um, you know, going back to to things we're pulling from here that I think are really applicable, let's say, for the average person. There's something else that stood out to me. Um, it was a quote on page 137 when she was it was you were talking about the 70s kind of being a little bit of a rough patch in Britain for the Royal family. And then it says it's a quote from her. Perhaps we make too much of what is wrong and too little of what is right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of take the spin of like, let's focus on, let's focus on the good things. You talk about her, you know, Christmas speeches that she does every year and how, even if the world's imploding, it's like, we're going to be optimistic. We're going to spin this. We're going to focus on what's good. And I think our nature as humans is to say, Yes, I have food and water and family and clothes and I'm safe and da, da, but my toilet's clogged, you know, and, and I say that because my toilet got clogged this morning and there were like seven people in line waiting to go to the bathroom, but it's, it is, it's just our human nature to focus on what is bad and dismiss what's good. And I mean, this, this optimism, this, this focus on what is good, that is one of her superpowers. Mm-hmm. You know, we live longer when we're happier, when we don't bottle those things up. So right. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. How has that yeah. impacted things for her and for the average person? Yeah, this is really critical to understand this and in, in her personality. So the queen is what psychologists would call a purposeful repressor. And um, I've kind of fallen in love with the idea of purposeful repressing. Um, It's not necessarily being in denial about negativity or, you know, burying your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. Purposeful repressors are very good at um, being careful where they select their attention. So like the queen, um, they don't like to 
vent. You know, we, we love to vent as Americans. They don't like to vent their negative feelings too often to others. Um, they don't <laughs> like to um, be too analytical or too introspective about their negative feelings. Um, and if something does negative happen, um, the queen will deal with that situation, of course, but you'll never see her like a week or a month down the road being like, okay, let's like, let's brood about this for a little bit. You know, she mm. wants to, she gets it out and that's, and that's it. She's done with it. Um, you know, this is, it's so difficult, I think for us. And especially as, um, sort of recipients of our modern therapy culture, um, mm -hmm. what that has sort of taught us that, being very analytical, being very, you know, venting your feelings, um, that could be very cathartic. Um, but we have to be very careful because researchers have done a lot of um, investigation into this and have have recently started questioning um, kind of the efficacy of doing this too much. Um, and that is negativity really doesn't act like any other emotion. Um, uh, researchers at Yale University have, have studied this quite a bit um, and that it sort of has this insidious ability to drown out and kind of narrow your emotional range of vision. So you, you literally can't start seeing the positive things anymore in life. If you've ever been mm. around, a pessimist, around a pessimist, you will obviously notice this. The world does look grayer through their eyes, you know, and this is... Um, this is one of the big tragedies, I think, of uh, Princess Diana's life. Um, she had a lot of nightmarish experiences. A lot of terrible things happened to her, but mm -hmm. she was not a purposeful repressor like the queen is. She was in the habit of, of daily venting for hours at a time, you know, her frustrations, um, being very introspective about her feelings. You know, she was a part of that me generation, you know, that kind of told her that this was very healing, kind of, this was a cathartic way to go about your life. So this is what, you know, she just believed she, she took part in a lot of aggression therapy. So, you know, she, her therapist would give her a punching bag and she would try to get all the anger out. But what this ended up doing um, is it, it kind of had a devastating impact on her life. And you saw this a few years before she um, actually died, she was sitting in a, uh, a group therapy session one day and everybody was going around the room and saying one positive thing that had happened to them that week. And when it got to Diana, um, she drew a complete blank and she could not think of one positive thing that had happened to her. And it's, it's such a sombering kind of frightening thought that um, negativity can have such a devastating impact on your brain's ability to think even in a positive way. I mean, here we have such, you know, yes, she had a rough life, no, no doubt about it. But here we have a very privileged woman who could not think of one positive thing in her life. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, I would, you know, advise anybody to, before they sort of um, think again, that um, being very um, kind of venting your feelings too much is, can be a very healing thing. Just, just, Take a moment to think about that. And I love this one quote from the psychologist um, I, that I use in the book. And, and, and ask yourself, you know, is this thought, is indulging in this thought, is this helping or is this harming me? Mm -hmm. um, and that's such a great, I think, takeaway is, mm -hmm. is and I, I repeat that to myself so much now, you know, is, is indulging this helping or harming me? And it's mm -hmm. a simple, simple little calculation that you make in your head. And, and most of the time, it's going to be harming you. Okay, I think that's a great place to pause. And we are going to pick this interview up with Brian Kozlowski, author of the fantastic book, Long Live the Queen, 23 Rules for Living. We are going to pick this interview up on Thursday, 
be sure to check the show notes so that you can get your own copy of the book. Grab yourself some dry farm wines. Join us over on patreon.com forward slash homemaker chic podcast so you can watch this fantastic episode. Parts one and parts two will be combined and we will see you. Brian, we'll see you again on Thursday where we resume the rest of this interview. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.